Sue Lowe is a software engineer and author of a book with the goal of breaking developer stereotypes. Stereotyping among developers leads to bad outcome. When incorrect assumptions are made about certain populations, these populations feel marginalized and engineering resources get misallocated. From the perspective of Sue, the most acute problem is about how children are socialized. Young girls in particular are discouraged from programming, leading to a steady decline in the percentage of women in the computing workforce. With her book, Sue is hoping to create a piece of literature that will expose young female and minority students to the world of technology and help them realize how cool engineering can be. Sue created a Kickstarter around her book and has raised more than $40,000. And in this episode, we talk about why she started this project and her experiences as an engineer. She has risen through the ranks. She works at Microsoft and how her perspective on engineering has evolved as she's become a principal engineer, which is a very esteemed role. And she also talks about the process of raising a Kickstarter, which I had no idea how that's done. It's pretty interesting to learn and might be useful to anybody who's thinking of doing their own Kickstarter. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Sue Lowe. Sue Lowe is a principal software engineer at Microsoft. Sue, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I'd like to start by talking a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into what you're working on. You have worked at Microsoft for almost 20 years. That's a fairly long time. How have you seen the company evolve over that 20-year period? It has changed a lot. When I started, it was during the big dot-com boom And pretty much nobody felt they could do anything wrong in software. And so there were a lot of wacky projects going on, a lot of money being thrown at people to try to get careers in computer science. And people were working very, I would say, in a very not disciplined way, you know, just making things really quickly. And over time, the industries matured and we, you know, the boom crashed and we learned we had to be a little more careful with our money and with doing things that people are actually going to want to buy and that we can support. So things have gotten a lot more structured and that's a good thing, I think. Another thing about being at Microsoft uh, specifically, you know, when I started in 1999, Microsoft was the place to be and it was super cool and everybody wanted to work there. And then we got sued by the DOJ and by Europe and and kind of became the uncool place to be for a long time. And now we've got a lot of cool, innovative things going out. People are really starting to get more excited about Microsoft. And we're on an upswing as far as people's perceptions of us as a company. So it's it's been a bit of a roller coaster and kind of fun to see it getting back towards a more positive side. Completely agree. And I did a show about that, the case, because when there was that, uh, that lawsuit, I was like, <laughs> like probably five years old or something. And I, I did, I had no idea what was going on. But then in college, you know, some of the professors were, you know, very resentful about Microsoft. And, you know, I just took the time to actually do some research into it. And I kind of walked away with a pretty distinct perspective that wasn't really confident that the company had really done anything wrong. It had just happened to be in the right place at the right time to accumulate a lot of power in the computing industry, but it wasn't necessarily in a 
insurmountable position. And I, I did. I mean, I walked away feeling like, and this is this is obviously not the topic of our conversation today, but um, I walked away feeling like the company had kind of been scapegoated, and it it was it's it's kind of tragic to think about what might have been if there hadn't been that public outrage that perhaps. Uh, witch hunt, but it ended up suiting Microsoft quite well in terms of how it's uh, borne out today. Yeah, I was pretty new at Microsoft at the time and didn't really know much about how the company worked. So I didn't know how fair or unfair the claims were. It certainly wasn't fun to be at a company that everybody hated. But I definitely think that our corporate culture is really good right now as far as trying to do the right thing for our customers and our partners and things and not not just trying to make money no matter how we can. Yeah. How has your perspective on engineering changed? Because you've gone from working on Windows, just operating system work, and then you worked on mobile. And, and when you're working on mobile, there's all these considerations around networking and uh, flaky networks that you don't necessarily have to think about when you're on a wired operating system. And then now the entire company is in the cloud. So you've really seen these different avenues of engineering and computing. How's your perspective changed over that period? Gosh, when I started, I was working on Windows CE. So it was aimed at really small devices and embedded things, the stuff we now call IoT. So our focus was very much on being very smart about how much we use resources and trying to work really well on on cheap and resource-constrained devices. And actually, that's still a lot of my focus. Now I work on performance for Windows. And of course, the worst performance is always on the lowest-end devices. So we spend our time trying to keep people from forgetting that disk isn't free and memory isn't free. I would say, engineering-wise, we always have to keep that sort of thing in mind because Moore's law isn't entirely true. <laughs> yes, indeed. And why didn't you ever go down the management path? You've been the company as an engineer for 20 years and you've made I think there is this is Microsoft is a company where there all are these different paths where you can go down the path of just deciding I'm going to be a software engineer. And you can continue to upgrade your career, which you have. You're now a principal software engineer at Microsoft, which is a huge deal. But why didn't you choose to go down the management route? Well, actually, I did for a little while. For about six months ago, I stopped being a lead, but I was a lead for about three years. And I got into it because I really liked helping people. And I found myself you know, being a relatively senior person, helping all the people on my team anyway. And being a lead, you can see a lot more of the breadth of what is going around. So it was really a way to get involved in a wider range of things that I cared about without doing all the work myself. But I ended up leaving it because I found I also was very harsh on myself about not being able to accomplish everything I wanted as fast as I could and how whether I was properly managing the people on my team and whether I was doing the right thing for their careers. And it just kind of added a lot of stress. In the six months since that I switched, I've been a lot happier in that regard. So I did actually try it for a while. That human stuff is pretty hard. Yeah. (laughs) The, The human element of management. Yeah, Obviously, there are the challenge. We had a show about this recently, but obviously, the challenges of 
deciding what to prioritize and okay, are we going to build this feature or that feature or are we going to launch the mobile app or the web app first? Like those kinds of things are technical considerations that are, you know, difficult to make, but in talking to people, really the harder things to negotiate are diplomacy and is this person getting paid enough and how do you resolve this conflict and the answers to those are never clean cut there's no book you can go to there's no clean code or agile process that tells you how to resolve a conflict or deal with an employee who is bored and not getting work done yeah there's definitely no formula you can follow and there's a lot of guesswork that goes into it when you're a principal software engineer like you are today, do you have a manager or do they just let you <laughs> kind of do anything? I do have a manager. Even people who are, you know, titled partner have managers. You do get more and more independent about setting your own course, but you still are working in a team towards the team's goals and things. And it honestly, it helps a lot to be on a team because really, even though I'm not a lead anymore, a lot of the things I want to accomplish, I have to accomplish by getting other people on my team to do help. So, but I'm still doing a lot of helping my managers set the course for the team and plan out how we're going to get to what we want to get or choosing what we want to get. So even though I'm not a lead, I'm still doing a lot of our direction setting and planning. When you look back, and we'll, we'll get into uh, to your book Soon, but I just want to ask one more question um, around this management stuff. You know, you've been there for 20 years and you've had a lot of managers, you've had a lot of leaders, you've had three different CEOs in your tenure there. What are the attributes that stand out when you think about the successful managers and the successful leaders that you have looked up to? What are the attributes that stand out as being successful? So one of the top attributes that I've seen that I really appreciate in the leaders I've worked with is the transparency that they bring when they talk about their own understanding and their own feelings about what's going on. So if people are really clear that we don't have everything figured out and we're still going along, uh, you know, figuring things out as we go along, I respect that a lot more than when people pretend that they are infallible and that their answers are perfect. Because when I can see the cracks in, in their argument, it makes me completely lose all ability to trust what they say. And so I much value people who show the human side of themselves and their own limitations so that I can be better informed about where we are and, and help them figure out the problems that they don't understand yet. Indeed. And over your 20 years at Microsoft, I think we could just talk about this from the perspective of being in the tech industry more broadly. What are the diversity problems that you have seen the, or the problems related to diversity? I think the diversity problems themselves are almost self-apparent in some ways. You know, the, the ratio of males to females or white males to any other category. Well, I guess, what are the diversity-related problems that you have seen in your time as an engineer? Well, even when I was in college, I started recognizing the different proportion of women versus men in computer science. And it's funny, I, I tend to be a little bit naive about things. I didn't even realize that until I got to college and then looked around and realized I was only about 
there were 12% women in the computer science program in my college, even though the college overall, I, I went to MIT, it was about 50-50 men and women, but in computer science, there were very few and that just continued on into my professional career. I know that there are also shortages of underrepresented minorities, but it's it's been, I would say, a, a puzzle that I've been working on ever since I noticed it, why women are so such a small represented part of our workforce and part of, you know, the computer science in general. I also, being here this long, have mentored and talked to many of the women that I do work with. And I've also seen a trend where women are more likely to drop out and that confidence issues are a heavy part of that. Even though they might say, well, you know, I'm leaving because I had a kid and I want to spend more time with my kid. I am a strong believer that there's never any single reason why things like this happen or, or rarely. And that a lot of this also has to do with, well, and I wasn't succeeding all that much, or I didn't think I was doing that well, or, you know. So it's not only a problem of, you know, getting people to enter computer science and software in the first place, but to get them to stay. And aside from that, there's these ambient cultural stereotypes. So even the stereotypes that exist outside of software engineering, the stereotypes that the world that is external to computer programming, what they imagine the the average software engineer to be, a white, nerdy, male, wearing glasses, and uh, unkempt, that permeates the uh, the actual engineering community and affects the, the engineers within it. Tell me, what do you think about the impact of, of stereotypes, both the external stereotypes and the stereotypes that programmers within the software engineering community themselves hold? Yeah, this is, I think, a really big issue and, and not one that people talk about too much because I think people who see themselves as fitting that stereotype just instantly, you know, get a bit of a confidence boost from it. And anyone who sees themselves as not fitting that stereotype, even though they might not consciously think it, I think they get a little bit of a detriment to their confidence. And so there have been some studies on different things like this. They've found that just reminding people who don't fit a stereotype that they don't happen to fit the stereotype by giving them subtle cues before giving them a little quiz question or a problem to solve instantly reduces their performance. This is called stereotype threat. By just reminding people that they don't match it, it tends to instantly you know, reduce test scores or, or outcomes on, on problem solving. And then similarly, there have also been studies where they find that Women and men performing technical tasks, this isn't specific to computer science, but things like finding ways to accomplish tasks in Excel to do different mathematical calculations, where women and men who actually have the same proficiency, the women will value their own skills. They'll evaluate their own competence lower than men with the same competence. So you end up having a confidence gap there just by, I guess there's no proof that that's because of the stereotypes, but I think that the stereotypes 
influence people's thinking about themselves in ways like this. I mean, I can vouch for pernicious stereotypes, even myself. I'm, I'm a white male and I'm wearing glasses right now. But when I was in college, I got into computer science when I was about 20 years old. And that's for many people, that's that's young. But for me at the time, taking these computer science classes, I was surrounded by people who actually had a lot more experience in computer science. Many of them had started when they were 13 or 14. And, and you know, I got caught up in the narrative of, oh, if you are going to be a successful programmer, you're somebody that started when you were eight or nine years old, your parent gave you a, a computer to, to program on. And, and that's just not the case. But nonetheless, I fell into that belief. And it kind of gave me a, you know, a sense of, I guess the term is imposter syndrome. Yeah. And there's actually the stereotype does include a bit of the motivation of the individual. Also, that white male nerd stereotype, I think there's also a built in belief that those people are using computers for the pure love of using computers. And if that's not your love, you might instantly just select yourself out of this when the real truth is you can do a lot of useful things with computers to accomplish interesting goals that if you're thinking of computer science in that way, it will bring a lot more people in. So it's not just even the gender and the race of the stereotype. It's also that motivation that if people just don't feel that love, they, they say, well, this isn't for me. There's some contingent of people in the software engineering community that don't really want to talk about this at all. Talk about the stereotypes or diversity. And it's not necessarily because they're opposed to change or opposed to some improvement or to improving the rights or the mental framework of people who feel injured by this set of problems. But the, these these people who don't want to talk about the diversity issue or the stereotype issue, is, they just don't want to talk about it because they want to get back to writing code. Is there anything wrong with somebody who takes a passive response to this situation and just says, you know what, I don't care about diversity, I don't care about stereotypes, I want to get back to finishing my app. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, I can't fault anyone for not having the energy or interest you know, we all have different things that motivate us. And if, if it doesn't push your buttons, you know, I can't tell someone they're a bad person for that. But it does mean that that person is not an ally in the effort to change things. Do we need to have 100% of people bought in on making change? No, but we need a significant enough percent. And anyone who is of that persuasion is at risk of becoming part of the problem, either by accidentally, you know, unintentionally perpetuating the problem, or, you know, just by not doing things to offset things like women needing mentoring or minorities needing a little bit more encouragement or something. So I'm not going to tell anyone they're a bad person, but I don't think it's helping. I've looked at this set of problems uh, enough to know that there's there's not one specific issue that we can solve. There's not one specific problem that we can tackle to cut down all the diversity issues, all the stereotypes, all the mental and the psychological barriers to there being more diversity 
in the software engineering world, and I think you would agree with me based on what I've heard from you. And but I think you know one area we could focus on, and I think that you're focused on, is the question of why there are so few young kids going into programming, and why the the kids that are going into programming are of such a specific demographic. What are the demographics of the kids? The I guess the beginning of the pipeline that are going into computer science and programming? Yeah, I've got some statistics from a couple of different sources. One is from the the college board on the number of students taking the AP computer science exam. Even though some other AP exams are pretty good at being 50-50 male to female, like the AP statistics exam, which you might not expect, or AP calculus also is about 50-50, when it comes to computer science, the AP computer science exam, only 19% of the people taking that class or that that exam are, are female. This is, I should note, before they just added a new AP course called Computer Science Principles, which seems to have been a lot more successful in bringing in women and I think minorities because it has a little bit less theoretical positioning to it and a lot more applied to other fields. So they've succeeded in bringing more people, but I don't have stats on that one in front of me. As far as diversity of people entering the field, I have another source called the NCWIT, National Women in Technology. I forget the C. But women in total in computer science are, depending on which flavor of computer science you look at, um, 18 to 20%. So that's, you know, consistent with the College Board stats. So at least they're not dropping out between that high school and computer science college, but, or not a lot, but even still it's, you know, 20% women where, and in fact, if you look at the trends, I have another a trend line from the same NC WIT report on women in computer science, then percentage of women in computing has actually been steadily dropping since a peak in about 1991. So it used to be over 35% and now has dropped to 25 well, what you said about the principles, computer science principles classes being more successful with a wider variety of types of people, that is so unsurprising to me. When I was taking computer science classes in in school, there was a lot of emphasis on the theory, and I would go home and spend all my time on side projects, and then I would fail my, well, I wouldn't fail, but I would get really bad grades in my theory classes, and I would be like, well, you know, I was hacking on something, you know, what's wrong with that? <laughs> and I always felt that just teach the practical stuff first, give people the feeling that dopamine rush of building something and hacking on something, and then seeing where it doesn't break and seeing where it doesn't scale, and then you have sufficient motivation to learn the theoretical stuff. But when they try to teach both of these things at once and they try to teach you big O notation while you're still trying to learn what a basic data structure is, and I don't know, it feels confused, but I'm not a computer science teacher, so maybe maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) No, there is something to that. I think the way that computer science is taught is and has been part of the problem. And in fact, there was a really good book published about some improvements they did at Jane Margolis published a book about uh, called Unlocking the Clubhouse. 
about women in computer science where at Carnegie Mellon, they changed the way they taught computer science and made it a lot more applied and less theoretical and greatly increased the number of women in computer science. So it is possible to make big strides in it by just changing the way you talk about it and the way you teach it. You're writing a book with the goal of breaking some of these developer stereotypes, and you're doing this through Kickstarter. It's a pretty interesting process that you're going through. I've been reading about you documenting your your progress. First of all, explain what your book is about. Yeah, so we've been talking about stereotypes and you know how it can be beneficial to change the stereotypes in our world. And actually, for a couple of years now, it's been in my mind that if tech companies were smart, they would work on this stereotype problem and try to change the narrative in our media so that people didn't believe it was only for white, nerdy males. And so a friend of mine, I guess, challenged me. He said, you can make this happen. You can get a ghostwriter and get somebody to write this book for you if you just get moving. So I took that to heart and started thinking about how I would write a book to change the stereotypes in the world, not a book about how people should enter computer science, you know, nothing, nothing nonfiction, but just if we could write a good story that everybody wanted to read, uh, which is a tall order, that we could actually put new role models out there and um, start getting people just breaking those stereotypes in their minds. So I spent a while this summer uh, while I was on a vacation, just sitting down and writing out an outline for how I would write a book if I had. And I went and hired a ghostwriter to help me make it happen because I am not a professional writer. And somebody who is a professional writer and been around the block a few times can do a much better job than I could. So I found a ghostwriting agency and uh, they connected me to a writer. And she's actually the perfect partner for me to work with because she's actually worked in the software field before. She used to do technical writing for actually early versions of Windows, then left the software field out of a bit of disgust with problems in the workplace and went to her writing passion. And now she's working on helping me write this novel. You know, I think the process of ghostwriting is so underrated. I don't know if you've heard of this company. There's a company called Book in a Box that I heard some podcasts about it, and then I researched it a little bit. It's pretty interesting. Like, It's basically like ghostwriting as a service. You can easily find a ghostwriter to, to write your book. You think about it, like, there's a lot of people who are super busy but have a whole lot of information that they would be able to deliver if they just got interviewed by a ghostwriter and had their book written for them. Tell me about the ghostwriting process. It seems just so awesome to me, and I'm, I think there's kind of a bad uh, reputation around ghostwriting, but it seems awesome to huh. me. Uh, so, so when I began researching ghostwriters, it became clear that there are two main reasons people hire ghostwriters, one being to write memoirs and the other to help people write technical books. So a little more along the lines of what you were saying, for anyone who has lots of knowledge and things to say, but not uh, the time to write it down, there seems to be a pretty big ghostwriting contingent for writing technical books. So the novels seem to be a smaller proportion of the ghostwriting audience, but 
ghostwriting is kind of interesting in that I, as the owner of the content, actually own the result. And if I wanted to, I could put my name on the book and pretend that I was the only one who worked on it. That might not be true of all ghostwriting agencies. That wasn't the reason I wanted to go to a ghostwriter. In fact, I probably would do better having a known author's name on it than my own, because my goal is not to not to make money, but to try to get people to read this book and change their own opinions about who can succeed in computer science. So it seems like you can actually enter with as little as a vague idea and as much as, you know, almost written stuff that you need them to edit for you or to, you know, revise and improve. I went in with a general idea of the plot and then a list of the characters and an outline for a plot I think I could succeed with, but also an expectation that a well-versed writer might rip it all to shreds to make it better and the willingness to let them do that. So, you know, ghostwriters are working on your commission, so they'll do what you want. But I want my book to be a good book and not just something to stroke my own ego. So I've given my ghostwriter a lot of free reign as to how she ends up organizing it. Mm, That sounds like the right relationship to have, because I think people often make this mistake with delegation is over prescribing what to do in the delegation process. But if you if you want to actually get the best results, you have to figure out how to stoke the creative energy of the person that you're delegating to. Yeah. So my own approach has been to try to to make really clear my goal of making it of breaking stereotypes in computer science and making it clear the relationship between computer science and what you can accomplish with it, as opposed to just computer science as an end, and then to just give my ideas for how we might accomplish that and then let her go with it. So, Yeah. So this Kickstarter process, you went on Kickstarter, you published a video of yourself talking about why you were motivated to do this project, which you've described so far, and what you were going to do and the ambitious goals of the Kickstarter campaign and the book and the goals of really just making a, a hit. And I'd like to know more about the the process of getting something going on Kickstarter and how you do that successfully. Oh, well, people who've done a lot more Kickstarters, Kickstarter campaigns would be a better source of how to do it really well. In my case, I was mostly just trying to build a community of people to ultimately, you know, get the word out about the book, as opposed to, I mean, raising some money to, so that I don't have to pay it all myself was useful, but not the primary goal. So with Kickstarter, really, there's a lot of an art to it. And I would say I bumbled my way through it and didn't quite do it the best I could. An ideal Kickstarter campaign involves a lot of pre-campaign work where you kind of build your community before you even get started and get them really revved up so that you really hit the ground running the day you announce the campaign. I didn't even know about that. And then as the campaign is going, there are all sorts of tactics to, you know, kind of bring in more donors and such as well as running a successful after campaign where you can continue to take orders or if you've had wild success 
to manage the many, many things you have to do in order to satisfy your promises. My project is nowhere near the large campaigns that happen on Kickstarter. But I would say probably the number one thing that worked the best for me in my particular campaign was that in 20 years of working, I've accumulated a lot of contacts on LinkedIn, mostly people I've worked with at Microsoft before, but other, also other people outside that I've worked with in the industry. So I have about 800 contacts in LinkedIn, and I actually downloaded the contact info from all of those exported it from LinkedIn and then sent a mass email to 800 people, which didn't entirely feel that comfortable, but it was the way to get the word out. Wait, so if you're connected to somebody on LinkedIn, you can get their email address? On LinkedIn, unless you explicitly hide it, you are sharing your email address with people. You may not realize it. Oh. So I emailed all my contacts in LinkedIn and I would say, so Kickstarter lets you see where the people came from who donated to your effort. About three quarters of the people who donated to my effort were people who I had reached in my LinkedIn. So as far as going viral and successfully bringing in a lot of new people, I would say I did not succeed in that, but at least I have a big enough network that I got a lot of support from my network. So Mm, Fascinating. Okay. Well, let's talk more about the book itself. I am a great lover of Uh, novels and this is your intent is to make a great novel tell me about what's the plot of the book that you're writing it's set in the near future so pretty much our world just a few years ahead the premise of the book is that computer science well software companies since they can't manage to hire enough people have started their own academies where they can uh, run a school People can go to the school for free, they get a computer science degree, and then after they finish, they work at the company for a while and essentially kind of pay off their debt for the schooling. So it's not exactly for free. It's more a little more like indentured servitude, although I didn't intend to make it abusive or anything. These people go to school for free, get a computer science degree, work at the company for a while, pay themselves off, and then have are free to do what they want for their future. So this is, in a way, my way of getting more women and minorities into the picture, but also it seems like a valid way to get more people into computer science. These students at an academy, you know, it needed it to be students because I'm really trying to target a younger audience. They're doing some work at the company, you know, they kind of doing internships before they're done with their degree. And it's a security company. And basically, they end up discovering a big hack at one of the clients of their company. And they investigate the hackers and try to figure out what's going on. And actually, it turns out, that it wasn't human hackers. There's this rogue AI attacking and that it was actually continuing to attack wider and wider into the world. So as time goes on, it gets it starts causing other disruptions in other systems outside of this the company and the, their client. So if you imagine like slightly into the future, 
People have self-driving cars. It's becoming a lot bigger part of our transportation network. So a really big hack, if, if it could get into that network, could shut down our transportation system and cause a lot of panic. If hackers could get into government systems or even, you know, they can cause a lot of panic as far as, you know, what's our military or our oh, nuclear you know, network or something going on. So, and then they couldn't even get out of the cities because they don't have transportation. So this is the general outline. Although one of the things I wanted to explore also was what is really AI? And if something is self-aware, does that make it instantly, you know, able to do everything that a human could do? Is it, you know, what's the difference between a human and an AI? And I was trying not to fall into really boring old tropes about AIs taking over the world. So, well, I don't want to give away too much, but it doesn't turn out, (laughs) it doesn't turn out to be that the AI really has the ability to do everything and, and to be quite as disruptive as humans might be afraid that it could be. Well, the scariest depiction of AI that I've I've heard is still the one that I heard about two years ago, which is the, have you heard of the paperclip maximizer one? Have you heard about this? No. So this is this guy, Nick Bostrom, who wrote this book, Super Intelligence. And uh, he's got the the idea that if you just had a a machine that just tried to maximize the number of paperclips it produced, which is like, okay, that's very conceivable type of machine that somebody would build and you just give it whatever kinds of materials you want and it turns those materials into paper clips and that sounds like something that AI could do very soon you know you give it wood chips and it turns the wood chips into paper clips you give it pieces of steel and it turns this piece of steel into paper clips and then as it optimizes it turns into a paper clip maximizer and it just tr- starts to turn everything into paper clips and the, the, you know it just starts to turn humans into paper clips and like we wouldn't want that but this is kind of the description of you don't even need a universal ai in order for it to start getting scary you can have a narrow ai that just makes paper clips and it sounds ridiculous but it's very conceivable and it's it's, it's i think that's if i understand correctly that's sort of the notion that you're driving at is that we don't need to have a universal ai in order to have a kind of an enemy uh, that is a computer. Yeah, my AI kind of goes very much along those same lines. It really can't do everything. And so you can, but the truth is anything that's so narrowly focused is also narrowly capable of disrupting our world, I would say. You can't really take over the world if all you can do is make paper clips. And you have very simple points of attack where all we have to do is disrupt your supply and you can't do it anymore. So I guess as far as being afraid of artificial intelligence, I'm relatively optimistic that we're overblowing the capability of such a thing and that there are very simple um, points of failure when it comes down to hmm. something that's that humans can build, at least today. Really? What makes you say that? Well... I've been writing too much software, I guess. <laughs> I know the limitations of of what we can build. And it's it's really a human trait that we're very flexible and capable of changing and capable of putting together unrelated things to make new ideas. And that without these things, a computer can only do what the computer is told to do. And it, it can grow in ways that we kind of tell it to grow 
but there are limits to how much we can build into a software right now. All right. Well, tell me more about the plot, like the contours of what drives the AI to wanting to do these kinds of things, if you can at least hint at it. It turns out that there's a human involved in the creation of the UI, of the AI, I mean, it was unintentional, but the human ends up trying to cover their tracks and ends up really disrupting the effort to stop the AI as a way of protecting themselves. Oh, okay. So, well, how long till the book comes out? What's the roadmap for it? It's a little bit hard to predict. One thing about working with a ghostwriter is that they're actually working on more than just your project at a single time. My ghostwriter's got a couple of books going at the same time. She, heaven forbid, took a week off at Thanksgiving. Um, so <laughs> I haven't heard from her for a little bit, but I, I just touched base with her. And she says she's approaching 10,000 words, where our goal is to hit 65,000. So we've already gone through rounds of her basically taking my list of characters and my outline, revising them, changing them to you know be a plan that she thinks she could build really well. I approved her outline about a month ago, and now she's taking that and doing the first real writing on the book. So we're going to try to take the first couple of chapters and do extra rounds of review of those to make sure we're getting... The, the tone and the characters and stuff down the way that we're both happy with. And then she should be able to make a lot more progress after that. So I anticipate it'll be done. So my ballpark was a year from when I started the Kickstarter. So I started in, I believe it was September of 2017. So I am promising that we'll, we'll try to publish the book by September of 2018. My hope is that that'll be more like six months of writing and then six months of shopping around with publishers and things. So my hope is that it'll just be, let's say, four more months. I can't control the pr progress that my guest, ghostwriter works at, but, you know, she's working hard on it. So the goal of this book is to make a book that is targeted at young adults, right? It's like, you know, maybe eight years old to 14 years old? Is that kind of the target audience? Yeah, I'd really like to catch, you know, middle school and high school students and, and get them intrigued in the idea of working in software. So if they read a book and, and walk away going, huh, that sounds like something I could do, that's really what I'm after. Hmm. I see. Just to zoom out, because I know we're up against time, do you think things are getting better? Like when you look at the industry as a whole and relative to the rate of change that you saw 20 years, 10 years, five years ago, how are things improving or are they improving? I would say, well, there hasn't been a change in stereotypes at all. In diversity, it's been relatively flat. But one positive note I do see is I see a lot more awareness among men and the other people outside of the women and minorities. So I think we're getting a larger group of allies on our side who are motivated to help, even if they don't know what to do. Just having more people out there going, yeah, this is a problem and we should work on it and let's try to figure it out together makes a huge difference. Um, 
even to the people in the community, you know, the women and minorities, even without changing anything, just having more people on your side helps. And so I would say also there's been a little, you know, the conversations move forward a little bit on trying to understand the reasons behind it. No one understood implicit bias five years ago. And now, even if people disagree with it or find it threatening when people, you know, talk about it, there are more people going, yeah, that makes sense, you know, and trying to find ways to mitigate it without trying to blame anybody. All right. Well, Sue, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great to talk to you about your history and where the book is going. I, I look forward to promoting the book as soon as it comes out. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. Wow. Wow. 